Welcome to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm your co-host, Erica Easley-Hauser. In this interview series, each month, we feature a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend time speaking with the author. Today, I'm excited to have as a guest Colin Colloway, author of a wonderful new book entitled Indian History of an American Institution, Native Americans and Dartmouth, published by Dartmouth College Press in 2010. Most listeners may know that Dartmouth College is an Ivy League institution located in Hanover, New Hampshire, and has been ranked amongst the top liberal arts colleges in the country. However, what most listeners may not realize is that the college was originally founded in 1769 for Native American students. Holloway discusses in this work that Dartmouth was not single-handedly founded by Eliza Wheelock, a European-American Congregationalist minister. In fact, Wheelock's former student, Sam Samakam, a Mohegan Indian minister, also must be recognized as a founder of this distinguished institution. Yet Wheelock and Ockham's complicated relationship really serves as an important springboard to further understand Dartmouth's multifaceted history pertaining to Native American education. Calloway broadly covers the changes over time from the original Indian school mission from the 18th to the 19th centuries. Additionally, during the last several decades of the 20th century, Calloway discusses how Dartmouth has recommitted itself to Native American education and indigenous studies in a variety of ways. I hope that you'll enjoy this very illuminating interview. Dr. Calloway, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the New Books Network. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We're talking about one of your latest books, Indian History of an American Institution, Native Americans, and Dartmouth. And before we get into the book, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself for some of the listeners who may not be familiar with you or your research? Tell us, you know, where you're from and how you came into studying Native American history. Sure. Uh, Well, I grew up in the north of England, uh, English father, Scottish mother um, in Yorkshire. Um, And... Obviously, I'm often asked how I, how I came to be doing this, and I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in Native American history, and I think it's because I was interested in American history, and as a European, um, what seemed distinctive about American history was the presence of Indian people as a historian, as I matured. What amused me about American history was the relative absence of of Indian people. So for me, Native American history was really a way of understanding the history of this continent. Um, And it's a history that, frankly, I think makes not much sense without Indians. Um, So my first uh, teaching position was in England. I had a tenured position there, and then I met and married an American. left my position in England, came to the United States, uh, couldn't get a job anywhere, so I, I taught high school, uh, actually taught high school in Vermont. And ironically, I would, uh, at evenings and weekends, often drive up to use the, the Dartmouth, the library at Dartmouth, to continue my research and writing. And in those days, I'd often have to pay to, to borrow books. Um, and I moved I've got a position working at the Newbury Library at the Indian History Center of the Newbury Library in Chicago. Uh, from there, I went to teach Indian history at the University of Wyoming and then came back here uh, several times as a visitor and then was hired into a permanent position. Um, and I chaired the Native American Studies program for, for a dozen years here. Uh, and uh, I'm still here. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, in your book, uh, you do a wonderful job certainly covering uh, the history of Dartmouth and particularly the, the founders of Dartmouth, um, both Eliezer Wheelock, uh, who was the congregational reverend, and then his protege, Samson Ockham, uh, the Mohegan Indian. And I wondered for our listeners, if you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, what kind of discoveries did you find out about these two particular uh, people in, in terms of the biographical information that you wrote about? Yeah, of course. Uh, and Eliezer Wheelock, of course, is the founder of, of Dartmouth, is is well known, <clears throat> certainly around here. Um, and um, I think, as I said in the book, the, the, the weather van on top of the, the Baker Tower, the, the Dartmouth Library, uh, depicts a colonial figure uh, with uh, an Indian figure sort of at his knee. And the idea is, of course, that the the Indian is learning from the, the colonists that, in this case, it would be Ockham at the knee of, of Eliezer Wheelock. In Native American studies here, I think we, we, we'd balance that a little bit, if not reverse it. And what I wanted to do was to uh, try and reconstruct the, the, the history of the narrative and, and perhaps give a little bit more uh, credit to uh, Samson Ockham as perhaps a co-founder of Dartmouth. Ockham was uh, Eliezer Wheelock's first student, not at Dartmouth. Ockham never came to Dartmouth, but at Wheelock's first school in Lebanon, Connecticut. And not only was he Wheelock's first native student, he was his star student. He seems to have been a brilliant scholar by any standards. Um, And when Wheelock had the idea of, of, of building a new college, in, as he said, in the heart of Indian country. wasn't exactly sure where that would be at the time. He decided to employ uh, Samson Ockham, who by that time uh, was a minister, uh, to go to England and to deliver sermons. Uh, Native Americans had been to England before. There had been many delegations over the previous 100 years and more, but never a Native American minister. And the idea, of course, was that in that role, Ockham would um, would demonstrate what could be done for Indians given the proper education and, of course, given the proper funding. The idea was to raise money. And Ockham gave hundreds of sermons in, in Britain, and he was a huge success, and he raised 12,000 pounds, which was an enormous amount of money at the time. Uh, it was described as a bushel of money. Um, and that was the seed money for establishing what became Dartmouth College. Um, the relationship between these two people is interesting because Wheelock obviously regarded Ockham as his subordinate and somebody who you know, should essentially do Wheelock's bidding and be grateful to do it. Uh, Ockham was a smart guy, an intelligent person, and had his own views on things, and they distanced, and largely as a result of the founding of, of Dartmouth, because Wheelock spent the money, uh, built the buildings, and very few Native students came to Dartmouth. In fact, mm. Dartmouth graduated only three Native, uh, Native American students um, before the end of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, Ockham was deeply offended by that. He felt betrayed by that. He felt that mm. he'd risked his life going across the oceans to England, um, 
and raising this money and that Wheelock had let him down and had created a school which was just like any other school, a school for uh, for young white men. And mm. after that, they distanced and then never spoke again. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, I also kind of thought, too, you mentioned um, and just broadly thinking about the development of Indian schools. And you talked about, you know, that Harvard and William and Mary had uh, Indian schools prior to Dartmouth. And so I just wondered, you know, what was sort of distinctive or what differentiated Dartmouth's kind of story um, in terms of being a, a, a student you know, a school basically sort of founded for Native Americans. But then, as you just mentioned, kind of shifted uh, perhaps in that mission. Yeah, Um and of course, educating Native Americans was part of the colonial agenda. Uh, so mm-hmm. <clears throat> other places took it on. It like <clears throat> like extending Christianity. The idea was that this would be a means of raising Indian people up. Um, today, I suppose we would call de-educate call it de-educating them because there, there was no conception that. English colonists had anything to learn from from Indian students and Indian ways of of, of knowing something. I think we'd <clears throat> we'd more appreciate today. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what distinguished Dartmouth was that even though precious few Indian students came here in the early years, the the tradition and the knowledge that this school had been established at least ostensibly as a school for educating Indian people persisted. And so even during the course of the 19th and early 20th century, when there were few Indian students here, many of those traditions, um, often in a rather unfortunate um, form, um, endured. And um, and Dartmouth, unlike other places, or at least earlier than other places, went back to its original mission and in 1970, the then President Kemeny recommitted Dartmouth to its original mission and said, it's 200 years late, but it's time mm-hmm. that we honored that pledge. And then mm-hmm. Dartmouth began in, in, with renewed earnest to recruit Native students, set up a Native American program, set up a Native American studies program, and since that time uh, has... Um, grown and and developed its programs and and I think gone a, a long way uh, towards mm-hmm. doing what it said it was going to do. <laughs> yeah. Mm, okay. Um, one of the things uh, regarding your book also that I, I particularly appreciated was the appendices at the back. And I wondered, uh, you had a listing of, you know, those the three students that you mentioned that were educated mm-hmm. at Dartmouth, plus uh, students that were at the prior Moorish Charity, Charity School. And I just wondered, you know, how did you get to some of these details of, of these biographies of those students? And if you spoke with any of the, uh, you know, descendants of those students from the 18th and 19th centuries, Sure. Yeah, this this actually was one of the more interesting parts of, of writing uh, this, this book and, and um, something I didn't really expect. But when, when Samson Ockham was in Britain raising money, he raised money from England and he raised mm-hmm. money from Scotland. The English money was overseen by a board of trustees headed by Lord Dartmouth. The Scottish mm-hmm. money was handled by a missionary society in Scotland called the Society in Scotland for Propagating uh, Christian Knowledge. Mm. And I can say this being Scots, being Scottish, they kept tied a hold on it and Uh basically said, this money was raised to educate Indian students. It should be used for educating Indian students. 
And Dartmouth president after Dartmouth president tried to wriggle out of that commitment and say, well, couldn't we use this money more generally for education and any Indians who happen to be here will get the benefit of it. The, the, the Scottish society said no. So what happens is that you have in the Dartmouth archives ledger accounts with detailed records of how much money, if you like, every penny spent mm. on Indian students. And you know, I'm not given to looking at uh, financial accounts, but pouring <laughs> through those, you get fascinating insights into the life of not just Indian students, but any student in Dartmouth in the 18th century. There's money to pay for laundry, shirts being mended, uh, firewood, candles, lamp oil, all the kind of things that students need, and you know some specifically for Indians. And so Indians are mentioned. And there are various lists of the of the Indian people who had attended Dartmouth and also Moore's Charity School, which Wheelock moved up here at the same time as he established the college. So there were lots of Indians coming to that school who never mm -hmm. went to Dartmouth. There's records of the financial um, expenses entailed in educating Indian people, and their names are given. So I was mm -hmm. able to find in those lists, uh, in those account books, uh, individuals who didn't appear on other lists, and I suspect there are, there are others that I've I've missed, but um, mm. it, it it really is a rich record of that. Uh, and some of the people that I found, um, um, and those appear in this book, yeah, I I've, I was in contact with, with with relatives. I couldn't do it in a systematic way, not only mm -hmm. with relatives but also with classmates, because mm. <clears throat> Indian people who were who were um, well, to give a couple of examples, uh, a Kawia Indian from California by John Torte, name of John Tortes Mayer, <coughs> uh, attended here, um, but only for a year. Uh, he was an mm -hmm. athlete. Uh, it didn't work out. Um, but he became a baseball player, and his family, I think I communicated with his niece, told me, they were just tickled to death to hear that the then president of, of Dartmouth, the former president of Dartmouth, Jim, Jim Wright, who was a baseball mm -hmm. fan, had a baseball card of their uncle, right, who never, who hadn't ever graduated from Dartmouth, but considered himself a Dartmouth man, and there he was on the president's desk. Um, mm -hmm. The Cherokee artist uh, Kay Walkingstick, her her father was here, um, and. Other alumni from the class of 1943 remember fondly uh, their classmate, Henry Eagle. Right? This is mm. at a time when Henry Eagle was probably the only Native American person on, on, on campus who, who died tragically, and his classmate set up a fellowship or a scholarship fund for Native students here. So there's a lot mm. of connections in, in, in that way, and that's what found I found interest because I didn't really want to write a history of an institution. But what interested me was these multiple stories of individual people and humans' experiences as they as they came through here and as their lives intersected in in this place. Yeah, I, uh, one of the stories I particularly liked. You had a, a mention of a student from the early 19th century, uh, Jacob Jameson, and uh, you mentioned you know his connection to Mary Jameson, and I thought that was that was a nice story yeah. uh, that you included. Um, you know, maybe if you could just elaborate a little bit on on that story. Yeah, Mary Jameson was a a, a white woman, probably by name Scotch Irish. Mm -hmm. uh, she was captured 
in the Ohio Valley, Pennsylvania frontier when she was a teenager, I think in 1758. Uh, and it's quite a famous story because she never came home. Um, she lived and married among the Senecas and uh, stayed there. And in later life, she told her story to an American doctor who, who recorded the story, by which time she was... Um, a grandmother many times over. And mm-hmm. so that Jacob Jamison was uh, one of her grandsons who came to Dartmouth in the uh, early 19th century and who uh, I'd come across before as um, somebody who'd written about and been, if you like, an informant talking to, to non-Indian scholars about <laughs> Iroquois culture and those kinds of things. Um mm-hmm. So again, lots of interesting connections to to pursue. Yeah. Um, I also was kind of curious, too, in terms of kind of jumping to the present day a little bit, um, how, and you sort of alluded to this earlier about Dartmouth's commitment, um, how does Dartmouth sort of still commit to Native American students, um, and also what are some things that Dartmouth uh, does to sort of embrace uh, various Native American cultures and and celebrate those those histories? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I I had to... um, address and be aware of in, in writing this book, of course, was the, if you like, the the dark side of, of, of Dartmouth's history and its <laughs> Indian education. And mm. I mean, what happened at Dartmouth has happened elsewhere. Mm-hmm. In the late 18th and early 19th century, in the absence of any or certainly many <clears throat> real Indian people here on campus, Dartmouth adopted um, traditions and caricatures um, purporting to represent Indian people and purporting to honor the fact that they'd been established as an Indian Indian school. Um, mm-hmm. By the 1970s, of course, when real Indian students are actually beginning to come to Dartmouth in numbers, they, they come face to face with some of these caricatures and these traditions and things like the, you know, the Dartmouth mascot and the Indian head t-shirts, etc. Mm-hmm. And of course, find it deeply offensive, and that mm. you know um, creates tensions and unfortunate mm. situations and a circumstance or an environment in which Dartmouth is trying to attract and recruit native students and give them uh, educational opportunities, and yet at the same time is not always successful in creating an environment in which they do feel that they are welcome and they do feel that they're free to, to learn. And those kinds of instances of that, uh, of those things, have continued to uh, pop up from time to time again. I mean, some people mm-hmm. uh, say, what's the problem? The Indian mascot is supposed to honor Indians. I think my view of that, I can't speak as a Native American, but my view of that is that offense is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. And if somebody tells you we find this offensive, you stop doing it. Um, mm-hmm. That hasn't always been the case, but I do think that Dartmouth has, has, has made great strides and, and, and tried to address those issues. On the more positive side, since 1970, um, the number of Native students coming to Dartmouth and the number of Native students graduating from Dartmouth has has increased dramatically. Um, we now, uh, well, in its first quarter century or so, Dartmouth graduated three Native students. Um, we now regularly 
uh, matriculate 40 to 50 students every year at any one time. There'll be 150 students, native students or so on campus. And I think since the 1970s, uh, Dartmouth has graduated, I would guess it's now, it must be in the region of 800 um, Native American alum uh, from, as I say in the book, every nation, Indian nation from Abenaki to Zuni. Uh, many of them have gone home to work in their own communities. Many of, some of them hold very prominent positions in the current administration um, mm-hmm. and a whole range of uh, professions uh, and, and walks of life um, in between. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, the Native American Studies program has grown when it was established 40 years ago this year. Um, it had one professor teaching two classes, in other words, one half-time professor. Um, now we have, I think, seven or eight of us. Uh, only two of us are non-Native, and we offer, I don't know, 20 classes every year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's been a a fairly steady development, not that we've always gotten everything right and not that the that, that it's been a, a straight upward curve. There's been kinks right. in the road, but uh, I think we've stuck at it and hopefully, hopefully moving in the right direction. Right. And then there's also a, a post or a dissertation fellowship as well. That, there is, uh, yeah. College, right? There's the Charles okay. Eastman Dissertation Fellowship, which is for uh, a Native American student who is finishing that dissertation, and that's a great opportunity uh, for someone where you you actually have a year to do nothing but write <laughs> your dissertation. And I always say to people who get that, this may be a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, <laughs> right, and, and that's always been a nice feature too. Yeah. Okay. Well, just to wrap things up, can you talk a little bit about some of your new research? I know you mentioned that you were working on another publication that that's coming out soon. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that research? Yeah, I uh, I've just finished, and it's it's actually due out in a couple of months. It's published by Oxford University Press, which is a book on Indian treaties. Um, it's called Pen and Ink Witchcraft, which I also like the title. It's a, it's a it's an Adawa uh, chief referring to the practice of making treaties and, and telling Indian people to watch out because the the American treaty makers employ pen and ink witchcraft, where they can take your words, write them down, and then make you say something you never intended to say a hundred years later. Um, mm-hmm. And what I look at in that, I use three different treaties as real case studies, but I'm very interested in the stories of behind treaties, who was there, what their agenda was, what their experiences with with this whole process was. Um, and that's that's been a longer project that I, I, was, I was working on before I started the Dartmouth book, and I continued to work on it uh, during and after after the Dartmouth book and that's 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 um, that should be out very soon uh, okay all right well thank you very much I really do appreciate your time I know you're uh, very busy up there in Hanover <laughs> but again I, I definitely appreciate the time and your discussion of your fascinating book about Dartmouth's Indian history so thanks again for your time thank you very much it's been a pleasure you've been listening to new books in Native American studies We've been speaking with Callan Calloway, author of Indian History of an American Institution, Native Americans and Dartmouth, published in 2010 by Dartmouth College Press. 
For more information about this podcast series, you can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com or follow us on Facebook to leave questions or suggestions about new books that you'd like to hear more information about on this program. I'm Erica Easley-Hauser, and I hope you'll join us again.